according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are in Proverbs chapter 20. Join me there. Last week we were in verse 22 looking at waiting. We're going to move on beyond that. Actually we were looking at man's steps ordained by the Lord. We were looking at... Uh, ah. <laughs> oh, this is hilarious. Alright, well we'll just take it from there. I had brought in two sets of notes and intended to keep the new one and throw away the old one. I threw away the new one. That's okay. I have a slideshow. I'll follow the slideshow and we'll just go from there. Let's open with a word of prayer and ask our Father to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Thank you for grace and truth, Father, and the blessing we have. Uh, I just so rejoice that uh, this is a congregation that hungers and thirsts after the truth of your word, Father. And we uh, call upon your faithfulness to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. Might we receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, we were looking at decide first, investigate later. And um, when it comes to verses 24 and 25, let's see. Is that where we were? Yes, that's where we were. Because in verse 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? And if I have the right slide here, then that's what we're doing with there. So yes, we, we can rest in this as a confident truth. This can be a great encouragement for us. We can be thrilled to know that the sovereignty of God has put a plan in motion uh, from Alpha to Omega, and He's, he's shepherding that plan, and He's sovereignly overseeing it. We're a part of that plan, and so our steps are ordained. And yet, part of the, what He has ordained is our accountability to obey, our accountability to walk with Him. Uh, in other words, sovereignty is not uh, an excuse for us to become slugs or to become fatalists. And that's a danger. It's a danger if you overemphasize sovereignty to the point that, well, whatever I do, God's ordained it. So wait a minute. Yes, He's ordained your steps, and He does have foreknowledge and predestination, but we've got to be very cautious in, uh, in not um, plunging into the snare of fatalism. We're not, this truth does not sanction fatalism. We do have the duty to listen to His Word. We do have the duty to not ignore His commands, to be cooperative in our obedience to the plan of God. And so there is the divine sovereignty truth, there is the human accountability based on our volitional application. Both are absolutely true. And uh, we uh, hopefully have a really balanced view on this. And if, uh, if you're fuzzy on it, then I recommend uh, that you re-listen to what we dealt with last week. We moved on from there to uh, point 24 in the outline from verse 25. <laughs> Decide first and investigate later. That's not a good way to operate. Um, that's not only is that foolish, but it's also a deadly trap. And as it says here in verse 25, it is a trap. This is a snare that, that kills an animal. Uh, this is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy. 
And so you say it confidently as if you know for a fact that it's true, but because you said it rashly, the, the, the fact is you haven't even looked into it. You can't you know, confidently say that it's true. You have to, if you're afterwards trying to justify something that you said ahead of time, that's, uh, that's horrible. So when it says after the vows uh, to make inquiry, well, it's too late to look into it once you've committed. And if you've said a vow, the God of truth holds you to your vow. And so that's uh, ultimately what I think is the most deadly thing at all, of all is that the God of truth holds you to what you say if you make a, a foolish vow. Now, there is an exception to this. Do you know what that exception is? Not on the screen, and I don't have the scripture offhand because it's off the top of my head here. But it is for daughters and wives, actually, that if a daughter makes a foolish vow, on the day he hears of it, her father can veto it. Her father can veto that vow, and she is released. She is released from that vow. And then she gets a second shot at it. Now, if the father doesn't release her from the vow, then she's stuck But until she's given to a husband. And then her husband, on the day he hears of it, he can release her from that vow, see, or he can leave her bound by whatever the vow is. That So um, anyway, there's a, there's a marvelous truth there related to that, and uh, first with the father, then with the husband. And I think it applies in a lot of interesting ways, not only to the foolish vow the girl might take, but beyond that, I think it, it represents a, a pattern and a picture of spiritual leadership, headship of the, the blessings that, that a daughter has under her father's roof, and then the, the blessings when that gets transferred to, to the husband. When the father, there's a, there's a tradition behind the father walking the girl down the aisle and handing her off to the husband that beyond just a, a wedding ritual and some kind of a, a, a thing there, there's actually a spiritual principle at work there in the leadership that the uh, father has and the husband has with respect to his, uh, his daughter and then later on his wife. All right, well, um, so that's where we were. And now let's see what comes up next. Human government, let's deal with that. Human government, all right, and this is where the notes that I threw away don't help me. And the old notes don't help me. All right, so let's just follow the screen, see what, we, see what comes up. We look at verse uh, 26, and really it's an idea that was introduced earlier in verse 8. But you notice, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. The threshing wheel is a crushing wheel. And then the winnowing is once it's been crushed. Once it's been crushed and cracked open, then you can throw it up into the air and the wind is going to carry the lighter stuff away, the heavier uh, things that fall at your feet. Then uh, you can harvest. Anyway, this is the practice in the ancient world. And uh, these agricultural terms are used as a metaphor to describe what God does in our lives, what uh, government leaders can do. This is a, a passage centering on government leaders, a wise king. It's government that actually wields the sword, and that's for our grace benefit in, uh, in, under the laws of divine establishment. Even earlier in Proverbs 20, if you back up to verse 8, you're going to see a king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. And the disperses there is the same verb as the winnowing that we have today in verse uh, 26. And so um, I don't mind, in fact, it's probably best to use the winnowing expression back in verse 8 as well. Winnows all evil with his eyes. In other words, God, when, when, the, when the leader is, is prayerful, when the leader is humble before the Lord, 
when the leader uh, prays a prayer like Solomon prayed to God asking for wisdom and for assistance in, uh, in, in leadership, then the discernment, uh, the God provides that discernment so that you can be a biblical leader. You can be a biblical king, uh, pastor, husband, father, whatever the, the leadership capacity is that you are uh, humble before the Lord to exercise. Asking Him for His wisdom and discernment is, uh, is, is uh, the pattern that we should be that we should be doing here. And so anyway, there's a promise there in verse 8, but then there's the statement here in verse 26. And uh, the A part and the B part are um, synonymous. In other words, uh, they they go together. They're not antithetical. Um, And they describe this process for what it is. A wise king. This is what a wise king does. Or a wise mayor, for example. And it's remarkable that we hit this verse at this time when We've got current events going on in our nation over a hundred days now that the mayor of Portland has not stopped. You know, we should send this verse to the mayor of Portland. You know, it's it's a foolish mayor that lets the wicked uh, just run rampant and and ravage and destroy and and do what they're doing. Um, and uh, in this regard, all right. So this is the point, and not only do we have it here, but we have it throughout Scripture that the Bible does mandate order within society and uh, to punish evildoers, to reward uh, law-abiding citizens, and to protect law-abiding citizens. We have, uh, we have those principles there. I'm going to take this slide a little bit out of order. I'm going to start with Romans 13 and then we'll back up and get the rest of the slide. Because Romans 13 is an absolute statement and it's one that even doctrinal uh, pastors will dispute and debate amongst ourselves and uh, some some engage in the discussion for textual reasons and, and if you're going to discuss the text I'm all about it and we'll uh, we'll go over the text together because it says what it says and uh, and and we can agree on that uh, just objectively and then when it comes to well okay it says what it says but now what does it mean or or accepting that this is what it says, what is the application under these circumstances, then, uh, then perhaps there's some, some flexibility for the, uh, the application. But anyway, I think some pastors approach this incorrectly, where they actually misread what the text says based upon what they want it to say. And so I want to make sure we're solid on it here. Um, backing up to verse 1 in Romans 13, it says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. All right? That's the header. That's the, the blanket statement at the top that the statements which follow, uh, they amplify, they illustrate, but they cannot contradict and undermine the, the premise. Okay? God doesn't do that and any human author that does that is, is a poor writer. So you have a premise and then when you expand it, when you amplify it, when you, when you illustrate it, you can't illustrate in such a way that it reverses the, the premise. You see what I'm saying? And so uh, none of the statements that follow are intended to reverse the premise. The premise is be in subjection. All right? Be in subjection. And here we recognize that subjection is not equal to blind obedience, that you may disobey particular commands even while you remain in subjection to the authority. 
And this is the case too where uh, this is what landed the apostles in jail and this is what landed Daniel in the lion's den and this is what landed uh, the, the three uh, Hebrew youths in the, in the fiery furnace because they disobeyed while remaining in subjection. And uh, that's the, the circumstance there. Now it does say the governing authorities. That's the key because the, av- the adjective for authorities is governing. It's not righteous. Some people try to rewrite this and say, well, if it's righteous authority, I I should obey it. And if it's unrighteous authority, then God doesn't command me to obey it. And when you you substitute that word righteous in there, you're actually defying the text. You're not God's co-editor. God wrote governing. He didn't write righteous. And we're not free to change the words there. So if they're governing, if they're in power, God put them there. And in case you think governing means something different, He expands it, He explains it, He illustrates it in the following verses. There is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. And so that further defines what that blanket statement says at the top. The governing authorities, if they exist, if they're in power, if they're in office, if they got elected, if they're in charge, who put them there? God did, either by His directive will or His permissive will. And sometimes he puts wicked rulers in there to discipline us, to humble us, to, uh, to accomplish other purposes that, that he can accomplish with wicked rulers. So there is no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has, been, has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And so this is, again, part of that absolute statement that uh, we might disobey, but we're not resisting authority. We submit to the consequences of the disobedience under the uh, authority that's in place. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So if you are in a habit of always exclusively, never exceptions, you're always driving under the speed limit no matter what, then your right foot doesn't jerk when you see the, when you see the speed trap up ahead or the police officer sitting there. Uh, you don't have that trigger moment of, oh, how fast am I going? Because you consistently always, under every circumstance of no matter what, you're consistently um, driving under the posted speed limit. If that's your pattern, then you have no fear of authority. Now, I'm going to end the illustration there because there's other patterns of driving that are consistent with the spirit of the law, if not the letter of the law. And don't even get me going on the prima facie evidence that can be presented against you in a court of law. So long as you're driving at a reasonable and prudent rate of speed based upon road conditions and, and traffic conditions, then you have a defensible case to make before the judge when that day comes. In any event, that's a different discussion for a different day. Back to this authority issue. It is a minister of God to you for good. It is a minister of God. See, God designed this. God designed personal volition and individual accountability. He designed marriage. He designed family. And He designed nationalism. All of these principles are part of of uh, the laws of divine establishment and they're grounded in the early chapters of Genesis. 
So we're going to have this coming up starting on Sunday when we open up our Genesis series. But then you'll notice it does not bear the sword for nothing. It does not bear the sword for nothing. And so it's not volition, family, or marriage that bears the sword. It is nationalism that bears the sword. Capital punishment and all judicial functions are national functions, societal functions in your clan, tribe, nation. I'm sorry, your your tribe and your nation. Your family and your clan does not bear the sword. And we'll discuss that as well. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And we don't want to violate this principle. We don't want to violate the avenger principle because this comes to the fundamental issues of of our kinsman redeemer and and the applications there. All right, and so given that the government bears the sword and it does not bear the sword for nothing, okay, that's like a double negative that becomes a positive, that it's, uh, it's um, one of those like Hote statements that affirms the positive by denying the negative that uh, somebody on Facebook was asking about this morning. All right, let's back up now. Let's look at Genesis 9 and see the foundation of capital punishment. This is in the consequences of Noah's flood. And remember, before the flood, uh, they were strictly vegetarian. Uh, After the flood, uh, they're given an adjustment to their diet, thank God, praise the Lord, that we're not vegetarian anymore. We can be meat eaters now. And uh, there are other things that change, that uh, including animal fear. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So this is, of course, this is during the Gentile time. This is before Israel, before the clean versus unclean uh, dietary restrictions of Leviticus. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. So there's an issue with blood consumption, with eating blood. And it's beyond physical and and, and nutrition and, and so forth. It's also a spiritual issue because the soul is the blood. Soul life is connected to blood. So surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And that's a big distinction right there. So if an animal becomes a man killer, that animal has to be put down. If that animal has developed a taste for human blood, that animal's got to be put down. All right? And that's just a matter of, of human sovereignty over the animal realm. And it doesn't matter who does it. Because the animal was not... Um, morally accountable like uh, the human. Now when we get to a human murderer, from every man, notice, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. And so now the agent that uh, is going to have a role in, uh, in this is going to be the kinsman. Okay, And this is introducing a concept that's going to come in later in, in, in the law and in Ruth and other Uh, aspects as in terms of the kinsman redeemer. 
And then it even comes back uh, as a concept when Jesus talks about casting the first stone. Who's going to have the first stone thrown? Who's going to be the first hand that's going to be against the, uh, the murderer? All right, so from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made him, and this is the, the, the uh, justification, this is the, the stipulation that when you murder somebody, you are attacking the image of God. And the consequence for that is that your kinsmen, understand this, that, that you have attacked the image of God. Okay? And so that the uh, consequences must be the, um, the reciprocity on that and the end of your life. You forfeit your life when you uh, attack God's image. Alright. More to say on this in Exodus 21. Because there's all kinds of um, what-if scenarios, there's all kind of stipulations. For example, self-defense, if, if you're attacked and you're defending yourself and, uh, and, and you, you have to kill your attacker in self-defense, that's not murder. Okay? Also, accidents are accidents, they're not murder. And some of these details that come into place here. All right, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. And so if there are circumstances that need to be um, evaluated, then there is a procedure whereby in the city of refuge the defendant can, uh, can obtain a sanctuary and can receive a fair trial. If, however, a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. So there's no refuge. A city of refuge, even the temple, even the holy place, there's no place on earth that uh, he will be spared. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. See, capital punishment was more than just for murder. Parental abuse was, uh, was worthy of the death penalty. And you got to wonder, you know, we get these gangbangers flooding the streets and all this, you know, stuff. And, and the Bible talks about animals, wild beasts in the streets. And sometimes I read those passages and I think that passage is not entirely zoological. I think sometimes the wild beasts in the streets are homo sapien, <laughs> wild beasts that are mentioned in some of those passages. He who kidnaps a man... Whether he sells him or he is found in his possession shall surely be put to death. So kidnapping is a capital offense. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If men have a quarrel, and it goes on beyond verse 17, there's other issues here too. In fact, even down to the end of the chapter. And an injury and then recompense for lost time at work. And then slaves, a pregnant woman. If, uh, if she loses that baby because of you, that's loss of human life. Knocking out a tooth. You're going to let your slave go free because he lost a tooth. And then here's the animals. 
All right, so that's uh, Exodus. Let's look at Numbers 35. And we have uh, cities that are set aside for the Levites, Levitical cities. Remember, the tribe of Levi did not get a land grant. They didn't have territory like the other 12 tribes had, but they had cities scattered throughout, dispersed amongst the other tribes. And that was valuable for the, those tribes to go to the Levites for instruction and, uh, and other uh, ritual purposes. And also allowed for refuge cities where you could flee to a uh, Levitical city. Anyway, you get to uh, verse 6 here, and I'm not going to read all of this. It's verses 6 through 34. But the, um, the manslayer can flee there. And this is for the meantime whereby he can plead his defense. He can declare that it was not intentional, it was not premeditated, it was not murder, that perhaps it was accidental or perhaps it was um, just a happenstance that wasn't a premeditated murder. It gets described in different ways here. It allows him to have a free trial. And so uh, all the cities uh, shall be 48 cities together with their pasture lands. And then the um, place of refuge. The manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. And the city shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, okay? Or the redeemer, same, same word. So that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. In the cities, uh, there shall be six, and it describes them here, three on each side of the Jordan, and uh, six all together. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. So just because you went there for refuge, if they look into it and it finds out, no, this is a case of murder, then, uh, then you're put to death. It's not, uh, the refuge doesn't save you. Same thing with a stone in his hand or a wooden object by which he might die. And as a result, he did die. His murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. And so this is still a function of the state because the, the state is running the trial. It's still the, in agreement with Romans 13, the sword is in the, the hands of the state. When the state holds the trial, when the state uh, issues the, the, uh, the judgment, but then it goes to the kinsman redeemer who gets to have the, his hand be the first hand against him. A while back I was even, uh, there was a survey, I think it'd be, it didn't pass, but there was a, a, a motion or a proposal or I forget what, a survey, uh, the idea that murder victims, uh, family members, not only they can presently go to Huntsville and they can observe the, uh, the execution of the murderer. Um, and typically there's two windows side by side with a partition wall between them because the murderer's family is on one side and then the victim's family is on the other side. And they're both watching through the, the two side by side windows there as the murderer is put to death. But the button is not, and, and there's actually two buttons, um, the button is controlled by, the two buttons are controlled by the, uh, the state of Texas and the, and, and the officers that, are, that have the duty of executing the condemned person. The idea was, was that why don't we put the buttons inside there where the family uh, of the murder victim, the, the wife or the children or whatever, the, the nearest kinsman redeemer, 
would then be given the opportunity, if they so chose, to, uh, to push the button and uh, to, to have the instrumentality of putting the uh, murderer to death. Anyway, it didn't pass, and I don't think Texas would do such a thing. But the concept, I thought, comes right out of this, comes right out of the kinsman-redeemer principle, comes out of the, uh, the need for closure, I hate that term, the need for, um, you know, a soul, the settling of your soul without falling into a hot-tempered vengeance kind of sin that the Bible warns us about. Anyway, there's more here. This is all in Numbers 35, and if you read down through this, uh, but, it, you know, if it was an accident, if, you know, he threw something but didn't see him there, and, uh, and so forth. Now, the manslayer, even when he's innocent, though, here's the thing. So he's not considered a murderer. He is a manslayer. He has to stay in that city of refuge. And, and if he actually departs, then he's still vulnerable to the, to the avenger. The kinsman redeemer can come along and if he catches him outside of that city of refuge. And he has to stay there until the death of the next high priest. Okay? So at the, once the high priest dies, it says here, verse 25, the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled and he shall live in it until the death of a high priest who is anointed with holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of a city of refuge to which he may flee and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of a city of refuge then the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of blood. He should have stayed in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. So that's the, the procedure there. Let's look at a couple other examples. Second uh, Samuel chapter 1. David learns of Saul's death. It's kind of the boundary between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Uh, Saul and his boys uh, that uh, in war actually die, uh, except he survives his wounds and he requests he, different accounts on this. In fact, it's probably worth it to read back and see um, the death of Saul because there's a claim that gets made here. Yeah, here we go. So Saul is badly wounded. This is the final chapter of 1 Samuel 31. And he says, badly wounded by the archers, and so Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. So he wants his armor bearer to put him out of his misery so he's not taken prisoner. It's almost like a mercy killing idea. Doesn't want to be tortured and, and, uh, and, uh, by the, the Philistines. But his armor bearer wouldn't do it. For he was greatly afraid, so Saul took his sword and fell on it. Now, this is the divine account. Saul fell on his own sword rather than be taken prisoner by the, uh, the Philistines. So the armor bearer falls on his sword too. And, uh, and this. Anyway, when the report comes, we get down to, um, we cross now into 2 Samuel and we get a report of this. Came about after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites that David remained two days in Ziklag. 
it's, it's kind of a mark of God's grace because David might have been in that battle. David was a, a mercenary captain and his band was attached to the Philistines here. Uh, the Philistines didn't trust him going into the battle against the Jewish people, so they sent him off. He was in a different area there fighting Amalekites. Anyway, on the third day, behold, a man came out from the camp from Saul, his clothes torn, dust on his head, and uh, he came to David, fell on the ground and prostrated himself, and David said, and, and this report is not true, and it cost the man his life. It's interesting. Okay. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle. Also many of the people have fallen and are dead. Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? And the young man told him, well, by chance. Okay. And this is, this is not true. And we just read the, the last chapter of 1 Samuel to, to see this. I happened to be on Mount Goboa. Behold, Saul was leaning on a spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When I looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I said, here I am. He said, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me. For agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. And isn't it interesting that he claims to be an Amalekite? And where was David just fighting? Kind of curious. All right. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to score points and he's trying to earn favor with the new king. And he thinks this is his opportune time to do so. And so he's concocted this story that makes him to be the hero that, uh, that you know, puts Saul out of his misery and now brings the, brings the crown to David. So David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted, and I, I believe they were greatly grieved over Jonathan especially, but I think David had the capacity to grieve over Saul as well. To think that Saul could have repented, Saul could have had a better end to his life. He was the anointed king of the Lord. David wouldn't end Saul's life. Anyway, fast until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, that they were the objects of their weeping and fasting. And for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So David said to the young man, where are you from? He said, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. And David said, how is it you are not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? <laughs> Taking it right to the biblical principle. That even if he was a wicked king, God had anointed him, God would remove him. Not by, not by my volition, I'm not going to do that. And David had two opportunities earlier in different caves and wouldn't do it. So David called one of the young men and said, go, cut him down. So he struck him and he died. Executed him there on the spot. Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointing. All right, now David is, now you say this seems extrajudicial. It just seems like David took matters into his own hands. No, because David is also the Lord's anointed. David understands the, the spiritual principle, the doctrine from the Word of God. He is the next king. He knows he's the next king. And I don't, uh, I don't view this as improper in any way. Another example, for, uh, 2 Samuel 4, 
and uh, verses 1 through 12. So in between chapter 1 and chapter 4 what happens is um, Ishbosheth becomes the next king, the son of Saul, that really only the tribe of Judah is willing to, to follow David. The other 11 tribes had uh, followed the, the succession there from Saul to, uh, to Ishbosheth. Uh, but Abner knew that David was the Lord's anointed, and Abner was going to go and, and make a deal with David and, and give him the kingdom. And, uh, but then, sadly, uh, one of David's men, Joab, puts Abner to death in a, in a horrible way. So, um, anyway, when Ishbosheth heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, for all Israel was disturbed. And uh, this is going to result in his assassination. We learn about these two rascals. And, uh, and then there's another relative. Jonathan had a boy named Mephibosheth who well, was crippled in his feet. We learn about him here. Anyway, we get down. The two sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, Rechem and Benah, they departed. They came to the house of Ishbosheth. And uh, this is where they're going to assassinate him, strike him in the belly, and then come to David looking for a reward. You think they would have learned from the last guy that went to David looking for a reward. <laughs> anyway, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Hebron was the capital of Judah, the Judah territory. And said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord, the king, vengeance this day on Saul and his seed. But David answered, Rechem Bibbanah, his brother, sons of Rimmon, said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Now how did David know all that? Okay. I suspect his prophetic office, I suspect that uh, the Lord tipped him off on uh, the, the details on this. He's able to reign with righteous judgment and, and uh, execute justice appropriately. David commanded the young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and their feet, hung them up beside the pool at Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. Anyway, so more examples of this. And it's common, okay? It's common and it's appropriate and it's biblical. By the way, it's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. Jesus will be executing in the millennial kingdom. We'll have that coming up here in Psalm 101. Uh, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 2. There's a little bit of partiality. David should have also executed Joab at that time. And he didn't. In fact, he waits until his deathbed. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord, your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what he has written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn so that the Lord may carry out His promise which He spoke concerning me. Claiming here the uh, fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But then He says, Now you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me 
what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He was worthy of death. And he should have died. But David couldn't bring himself to do it, and he actually became complicit in some other problems later on because of that. He also shed blood in war, the blood of war in peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt about his waist and on the sandals on his feet. So there's difference between the blood of war and the blood of peace. And uh, violence in warfare is not considered murder. You're in the service of your nation. You are under the authority of your king. And uh, the issue is there. Anyway, so David uh, tells Solomon, act according to your wisdom. Do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. And so he's entrusting Solomon to accomplish this after he dies. And he does. You get down to verses 28 through 34 and, uh, and Solomon does this. And he tries to, uh, <laughs> he fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar as if that was going to spare him. That was going to save him. He was told King Solomon that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord. Behold, he is beside the altar. So Solomon sent Benaiah and uh, Benaiah struck him down. Alright. Let's look at the final example here is Psalm 101. Descriptive in the lifetime of David, but prophetically descriptive of what uh, Jesus will utter when he is reigning on the throne in the thousand year reign of Christ. Psalm 101, verses 6 through 8. I will sing the loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Now David could say that on various seasons, but then he had other seasons he couldn't say that. And he got into trouble with Joab and with others. In fact, he would even send Joab out to fight his wars for him while he hung out in Jerusalem and fornicated. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. Like I say, descriptive of David in his lifetime, but actually prophetically true of Jesus Christ and who he will admit into his administration when he reigns in Jerusalem. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Could you imagine if uh, a president or a governor or some politician had the, you know, you catch uh, one of your aides in a lie one time and you're fired, you'll never, uh, you'll never work for me again. I think we'd have some pretty thin administrations uh, short on health. And, but after, after uh, a weeding, I, I bet you the ones left behind would learn real quickly. Got to be honest, got to be true. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. 
That's why I say in the, if you're an unbeliever and you visit Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom, don't stay the night, okay? Be gone, go home before the sun goes down or don't be caught in town when the sun comes up. Because every morning Jesus Christ will execute you as it says here, to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. This was not true at any time in David's lifetime. That's why I believe it's prophetic for the millennial kingdom. All right, so this is uh, what we have there in point 25. What's next? Adamic breath. Oh, this is a fun one. Let's look at verse... uh, Let's see, we just wrapped up verse 26. Let's look at verse 27. The spirit of man. This is breath. Okay? And there is a close link between breath and spirit. Um, In fact, sometimes it's not easy to translate the terms. This is actually a term for breath, but it's the, the, the spiritual life that God breathed into Adam. It is Adamic breath. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. Oh, there's some fun stuff in here. We realize that humanity is not just an animal, okay? An animal breathes, an animal has breath. In fact, one of the criteria for putting the animal on the ark is everything that has breath was going to be killed in the flood. And so animals that breathe, animals that are animated, the word animate and animal is the idea that we're not plants, we're not rocks, we're, you know, we have motion, we are animate beings Um, in any event. But humanity, God breathed into Adam the breath of lives, man became a living soul, a living soul. And it's curious how, although animals are called nephesh in some contexts, and animals do breathe, but the animal does not receive the light of God's revelation so as to become a lamp of the light of God. That's unique to humanity. Anyway, this verse and the other verses on the slide are very useful for us to understand a biblical anthropology and what divides us from the animals and what is our privilege as light bearers, God being the source of light, but humanity being the, the depositories and the, the uh, reflective shiners of God's light. A lamp, not a, uh, not a source, but a lamp. All right, so Adamic breath. What we have here is the, uh, when it says the, uh, the near Yahweh, the near Yahweh is the lamp of Yahweh, the lamp of the Lord. And then when it says Nishmath Adam, that's that Nishmath is, the, uh, is like the Nashama breath that uh, in Genesis 2-7 where God breathed into Adam the, the Nashama. And God breathed into the, the dust body that he had manufactured for Adam. That dust body was not Adam. That dust body was just an earthly tent. And then God breathed into that body his breath of life. So let's look at these. Because this is uh, the spiritual life that's necessary for learning the Word of God. Spiritual life in the Old Testament and the New Testament, both. 
Spiritual life is what's required to learn the Word of God, not the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. We have that in the church age. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. Most believers in the Old Testament never got the Holy Spirit even once. Prophets and judges and a few folks would get it a few times. Maybe three or four people in the Old Testament had a lifelong, uh, uh, not even an indwelling, but a lifelong coming upon them that, uh, that we see in the Old Testament. All right, so uh, Adamic breath is what I'm calling it. It's the Nishmath Adam. The Nishmath Adam. And uh, so let's go to Genesis 2 7. Yeah, so we have the Toledoth. Been working on this a lot lately as we're getting ready to start Genesis on Sunday. So in a sense you can take Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 as the first account and then Genesis 2-4 and following as the, as the recap, the second account, the more detailed account. So this is the account or this is the generations, this is the, um, the Toledoth of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. And I know we've got to do some work on Barat and Asah, both of which are in this verse. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man, Adam, to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and, the water, and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the nashama, the breath of life, the same nishmath that we have here in, uh, in Proverbs 20 and verse 27. The breath of lives, plural, it is a plural noun, okay? It's not singular. Hebrew has a singular, a dual, and a plural. In many cases, the plural is three or more because the dual is two. That's not absolute uh, because there's some context where dual is not appropriate anyway, and so plural is, is applicable for two or more. But just for the moment, I mean, if we understand three kinds of life, then it's consistent to have breath of lives here, is that you have physical life, you have soul life, you have spirit life in, uh, in that sense. Anyway, stay tuned. We'll work on this. Um, but man became a living being. Man became a living soul. He has the breath of chaya, like life, lachayim, to life, and he becomes a living nefesh. A living nefesh. And that's what died when he ate. That, that spiritual life died. On the day you eat of it, dying you will die. His body didn't die. He lived 930 years after the fall. But his his human spirit, God severed the connection between the human spirit and God himself. That living connection between the human soul and, or the human spirit and, and God that every believer enjoys. Alright, we've got other passages that speak to this. How about Job 32.8? It is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. It is a spirit in man. Now this is 
again, is this is another verse that helps show us the link between the nishma, the breathing, and the ruch, which is the spirit. Okay? And sometimes they're synonymous, sometimes they're interchangeable. Clearly they're linked with God Himself. I mean, God doesn't have lungs, God doesn't have a, 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 a physical body, but He breathes. He breathes out, He breathed life into Adam, and He breathes every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. When we say all Scripture is God-breathed. And so those links become important. If you want to perceive the Word of God, that God breathes, then what do you need to have? The spiritual life that God breathed into Adam and in, in a sense to all of us at the moment of our salvation when He quickens our spiritual life, when He makes us spiritually alive. So it is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. This is what separates us again from the animal realm. The Greeks thought it was our rational thought. The Greeks thought it was that because we were logikos, that because we were logikos, logical, rational, that that elevated humanity above animals. And while they were not wrong about humanity being logikos and animals are not logikos, the, uh, they, they missed the mark in the sense that it's a spiritual issue. Humanity in the image of God designed to have spiritual life is what separates us. So it is a spirit in man. The breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The animal doesn't have understanding and the spiritually dead unbeliever doesn't have understanding. The spiritually dead unbeliever is a natural man. And in some respects that natural man takes on animalistic characteristics that uh, that the New Testament tells us about. Alright. So when you're designing a biblical a biblical anthropology of body, soul, and spirit, understand it's that living spirit that connects us with God that allows us to perceive Bible doctrine. Not the soul. Not the soul. It's the spirit. Okay? Now animals, while they're called nephesh, we can say animals have souls. Um, or we can say that animals are animal souls in animal bodies. Uh, I don't believe there's any single place in the, uh, in the Hebrew that ever calls an animal a spirit. Okay? Because the animals are, are nephesh, they are not ruch. But it's the spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty that gives him understanding. Alright? That's Job 32.8. 1 Corinthians 2 11 through 13. We've gone through this before. Part of spirituality versus carnality. Understanding the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. And then understanding the uh, problem that the spiritual man has when he goes carnal is that he doesn't lose his salvation. He doesn't revert to being a natural man again. You'll never again be a, so a natural man once you're saved. But as a spiritual man out of fellowship you have the carnality issue. And so this is uh, what we see in the progression from chapter 2 to chapter 3 here in 1 Corinthians. So who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. And we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And that's a capital letter S there I believe inappropriately commonly thought of as God the Holy Spirit that says 
that when we get saved, because we're New Testament believer priests, we receive the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. But I think you take this uh, capital letter S and you lowercase it because the living human spirit we also receive at the moment of our salvation also comes from God. We're born of God. We are birthed by the Father at the moment of our spiritual birth. That living human spirit so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual with spiritual. So God the Holy Spirit is the teacher, and because we have a living human spirit, He's got something to work with. (laughs) Okay? And until we have a living human spirit, we're not learning Bible doctrine. Being a new creation. Sure. Although that's slightly different because I think the new creation is limited to the royal family of God that's neither Jew nor Gentile. So it's slightly different. Yeah. But right. But being born again, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Old Testament believers had to be born again. Old Testament, you know, unbelievers, when they were born again, their human spirit was birthed, their human spirit was made alive. That's right. So any Old Testament believer had a living human spirit, as Job testified to. Job had a living human spirit, but he did not have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit like we have. And so Job was not a new creation in Christ. It's only the church is. But a natural man, and the natural man, the vocabulary on natural man, the soulish man. In other words, he's got a body, he's got a soul, He does not have a living human spirit. So he is a soulish man. And the the body that he has is adapted to that soul, but he he doesn't have a living human spirit. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The Bible doctrine to a spiritually dead unbeliever is foolishness. But he who is spiritual appraises all things that he himself is appraised by no one. Alright, so this is the spiritual versus the natural versus the spiritual. Unbeliever versus believer. Now when once you're saved you got a different problem. I'm running out of time. We cross into chapter 3 and he says, and I brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual man. <laughs> he says, now you're spiritual because you're saved, but now that he starts chapter 3 he says, now I've got a different problem. It's not that you're unbelievers because you're saved, you're spiritual, but now you're carnal. I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. And so that then becomes the other problem. When you're out of fellowship, when you're walking in darkness, you don't lose your salvation, so you don't revert to being the, the natural man all over again. But you do become carnal, fleshly. See? So, just like the unbeliever who can't learn any doctrine at all, a carnal believer, he's limited to sipping milk. He's, uh, he's very hampered in, uh, in what his intake might be as the Holy Spirit ministers. Really, he's got to get back in fellowship again through the confession of his sins and uh, the grace provision there. All right, well, we'll pick up here next week. I want to do I want to spend more time on this because we haven't even touched upon the lamp yet. 
So the fact that we have spiritual life suits us to become lamps. And we get to be lamps of God's light as long as we have spiritual life for Him to, to pour that light into. So we'll, uh, we'll discuss this next week. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for Your truth. I thank You and I praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.